Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 22nd, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Nizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Colorado Senate Republicans winning a decision in Denver District Court this week. The ruling said that the reading of bills in the legislature must be done at an intelligible speed. Three GOP state senators sued Senate President Leroy Garcia and Senate staff regarding the use of computers to read a 2,000-page bill recently. Patty Cahoon from Westward, a win for Senate uh, GOP, uh, GOP senators in the state Senate and a loss for Senate staff vocal cords? Really a loss for common sense. When you think about it, why do we even have this role still? Reading a 2,000-page a 2000 page bill is silly to have it read out loud. Why don't we just make it required that the legislators read the 2,000-page bill? <laughs> now, that's I, I like that idea a lot. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. I am no lawyer, nor do I even play one on TV, but it seemed that the Republicans had a strong case going in when you heard the cacophony that those five computers uh, sounded like. It, it, it sounded like a uh, Hal from 2001 and Exorcist had a mashup. But <laughs> was it as much of a slam dunk as uh, an average viewer looked at it? Yeah, there was only one possible legal result. Uh, Colorado Constitution, Article 5, Section 22. Every bill shall be read by title when introduced and at length, at length, on two different days in each house, provided, however, any reading at length may be dispensed with upon unanimous consent of the members present. Uh, unanimous consent was not provided, and therefore the bill had to be read at length. End of the case from a legal point of view. I would agree with Patty that it would be much better if legislators would actually read the bill uh, there are only a few who do conscientiously read every bill they vote on. My dad was one. Republican Tim Foster from Grand Junction was another. There may be some around now, but they are a uh, small and persecuted minority. <laughs> Natasha Gardner, uh, Articles Editor at 5280. Uh, Natasha, do you see any speed speakers being hired by Senate staff anytime soon? Well, perhaps if this has to become something that, that is a regular thing. I think when, I, when I'm thinking about this, I, I keep on looking for sports analogies. You know, it's penalties that are offset. It's two yellow cards, one to each team. And, and I think that that's what's happened. And if the true reason for this was to, to increase the, the time that we can spend discussing bills, you certainly don't have time to do that when you're reading the bill at a slow pace, and you don't have time to do that when you're reading the bill at a fast pace. So I think who loses here is the average Coloradan who just wants their legislature to work. However, I don't think it's the only time that they're going to be the losers on that particular front. Well said. Ian Silveri, Executive Director of Progress Now Colorado, thanks for joining us. How do you think this decision affects the rest of the legislative session? Well, unfortunately, I think the minority Republicans in the Senate have decided to try and, you know, get a win for being losers. I mean, they lost the last election in an unbelievable avalanche, and they've decided to kick and scream and, and be sore about it, unfortunately. Um, you know, when we were in the minority, when I was a House staffer, this was a trick that we pulled, too. So it's not like a thing that they invented out of thin air. It is a rule, and in my opinion, a fairly dumb one. Um, but it, the minority is now using it as an intentional obstruction mechanism and nothing else. They're not using it to try and bring people to the table to have a conversation. They're using it to literally slow down the legislative session so that nothing gets done. The people elected these these leaders in the House, the Senate, and the governor's office by overwhelming margins to get the p business of the people done. Republicans don't like what they're doing. Maybe they should have won a few more elections. Maybe indeed. 
This November, Colorado voters may be asked to vote on a proposal that would allow the state to keep excess tax revenue in order to fund higher education, K-12 schools, and transportation projects. The proposal would not officially amend the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, and because it is not a constitutional question, would only need a simple majority in the November 2019 election. Patty, uh, is this an official debrucing statewide 27 years after Tabor was passed in 1992? Can you believe it's been 27 years? I don't even think Colorado Inside Out was on yet. You know, we just started talking about it afterwards. But in 1992, we voted on the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. It was approved and surprised many people. And, of course, the Amendment B that made us the hate state. So we had a couple really bellwether votes that year. The hate state appellation went down. Supreme Court struck it out. And here we are, though, still talking about Tabor. Over the years, I mean, Tabor allows you, voters, to decide whether they want to debruce, and um, 51 of the 64 counties have done so, so. I think it's 271 out of 284 municipalities have done it. There have been a lot of opportunities for voters to make decisions, and I think that's great. That has worked. The problem we still have with Tabor is you've got the cap, which is you can't have spending or revenues in the state beyond a certain uh, formula with inflation plus population growth. And we're in a position now, although I'm sure David is about to disagree with me, where some things that need to be fixed in the infrastructure can't be fixed if you cannot use some of that revenue. So what we're talking about here is not adding a tax, but you would get rid of the refund, and instead the the state would be able to keep that money on one vote, and then would split it between higher education, K-12, through and transportation, all areas where I think we could need the money. Uh, David, you, we've long talked about Tabor on this program. I think folks uh, know where you stand, but let's get into more of the detail on two fronts. One, uh, the bill currently has a Republican co-sponsor. I don't know if his days are numbered uh, 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 as a, in a political career. And then also does does this live up to, I guess, what he's talked about as asking the voters their permission, which is what Tabor has been all about from 1992 forward? That's exactly right. Tabor is, a, is about informed consent. So under the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, government spending can automatically, with no consent, grow at the rate of population growth plus inflation. If the government wants to grow faster than that, all they have to do is ask the voters for permission. And as Patty said, plenty of municipalities have, have said that that's fine with us, sometimes on a temporary basis, sometimes permanently. This would be a permanent uh, end of consent in Colorado. It's one to, you consent once, and then that's it. You'll never get asked again, uh, no matter how fast government spending goes up. The promise, of course, is you'll get all these wonderful things like transportation and education. Well, we, we had that with something called Referendum C uh, over a decade ago where the voters created a five-year increase in the cap, um, which massively increased government spending. And, of course, all the promises were higher education, K through 12, things like that. didn't happen that way. What the legislature did was it said, oh, we got all this money we promised for higher education, so we're going to cut our higher education regular spending and put this new money into it. And in fact, the things that were promised under Tabor grew slower, uh, the promised under the referendum C budget buster grew slower than lots of other things. So this is like Lucy and Charlie Brown in the football. Uh, referendum C was a pack of lies that increased spending on other stuff much more than on what was promised. 
guarantee you this will be the same, and I guarantee you you will never get adequate highway funding in this state uh, from this current administration unless there is a tax increase. They will simply not fund highways adequately unless the voters put more money out of their, raise their own tax rates. Natasha, in 2018, Colorado elected a lot of Democrats to the state legislature, uh, both in the Senate and the House. Uh, but they also voted fairly libertarian on ballot issues. It, it kind of seemed like that, that split ticket that Colorado is always known for was more about uh, candidates versus issues. This being an issue, do we, uh, what do you think about its chances of passing if it does go to the voters this November? If I could predict that, I probably wouldn't be at this table. If, if anyone could predict how Colorado's voters are going to take um, our stance on a tax issue, there's a little bit more historical precedent there, yes. But I think that with as much population change as we've seen in this state, I mean, we're talking about when Tabor was passed to the number of people who have moved in the state since then who constantly ask that question of what is Tabor? How? They never weighed in on that conversation of whether we should have this or not, but they constantly hear about it. I mean, it has to be one of the top five topics at this table, if not certainly the top ten. Um, it is also something that you could probably put up an infographic every time it comes up. I mean, Patty did a great summary at the start of, okay, this is what it is. This is why you need to know it. Um, it's something I deal with in stories as well. Uh, to constantly re-educate a new group of Coloradans who come in who just don't have that background history. I don't think that this effort is a surprise to anyone who's watched Colorado politics for a while. Um, it was going to be a topic in the campaigns. And as soon as they, um, the control shifted to the, with the governor's office, the, the Senate and the House all being there, that this was, of course, going to become an issue. But I do think it's important to have a statewide discussion on that. And if this is a good way to start that conversation, let's do that. Ian, it seemed uh, back in the Ref C, Ref D days, and Ref D failed, but Ref C passed, uh, one of the necessary elements was that it came out as a bipartisan idea. Governor right. Bill Owens was a part of it as a Republican governor, uh, and Ref C still, I mean, it, it wasn't a landslide win, but it squeaked through. Uh, is uh, the one Republican co-sponsor right now enough to really sell this as a bipartisan idea? Well, I'm certain that the sponsors would welcome any Republicans who want to join on to the fight here to try and increase funding for K-12 higher ed and transportation. I mean, look, more than half of the schools in the state are on four-day school weeks. Like, the roads are garbage. It took me 20 minutes to get here, and I'm three miles away from here, right? No one thinks that the problems that we have um, are being addressed right now, and people know that it takes additional revenue to do that. That's a simple fact. So I know the sponsors would welcome uh, more conservatives. Unfortunately, you know, the moderate conservatives lost um, all their elections, except Kevin Friola wasn't up this last time, so he's up in two years. It looks like he's trying to moderate for the upcoming election by signing on to something like this. You have to think, what's his political calculation? What is the number one targeted senator in the chamber thinking when he goes, I'm going to sign on to this because I know my constituents want more funding for roads and schools, right? So you take all that together and, you know, it is bipartisan, right? I think that partisan political operatives want to make it seem like this is a big Democrat thing, but they're forgetting or willfully ignoring that the prime sponsor in the Senate is a, not only a Republican, but the one who's widely seen as the most in danger of losing election in the next, in the 2020 uh, races. So, you know, at the end of the day, this thing I think is, is going to be a great conversation to have. I'm excited to have it. Um, I think those of us on the left would like to go much further 
than a, a simple debrucing measure, and we should recognize that debruce is named for Doug Bruce, the convicted felon tax cheat who put Tabor into the Constitution to begin with after failing twice and succeeding once. Um, so I think there's plenty of conversation to have here, but I know that there will be plenty of Republicans who are not elected officials and scared of primaries who will sign on to this because they know it's the right thing to do. In a CNN town hall on Wednesday, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper announced that he would suspend the death penalty in federal cases if elected president in 2020. Hickenlooper also answered questions regarding oil and gas development from another former geologist in the audience. David, did the CNN town hall help or hurt Mr. Hickenlooper? Oh, who knows? He's, uh, it, it, it's way too early to, to say on, on that. I, I think I'm the only person at the table who has fought the federal government in a death penalty case in the Jason Plow Supreme Court case where I was wrote an amicus brief on the side of the state of Rhode Island which wanted to keep this bad guy in prison for life and the federal government was trying to take custody of him so they could uh, put him on uh, a capital trial. Uh, but Hickenlooper's thing here I think is more signaling or virtue signaling than, than anything else. Uh, although it certainly does show that he's uh, resistance to enforcing uh, the, the laws that have been enacted uh, isn't just something that sheriffs and county commissioners and sanctuary cities do. Uh, he's running for president on that platform of not enforcing uh, the federal death penalty that was enacted under President Clinton and enthusiastically signed by him. But it's also mostly symbolic. From 1927 to the present, there have only been 37 uh, people executed uh, under the, the federal death penalty. One of them in the this century, there's only been three. One of them was Timothy McVeigh, who murdered 169 people in Oklahoma City. Uh, another was a guy who kidnapped, raped, and murdered a 19-year-old uh, uh, Marine recruit by bludgeoning her to death with a tire iron. And the other guy was uh, somebody, a uh, drug trafficker, who arranged for the murder of three other uh, drug traffickers. And that's what he was executed for, but he also killed five other people in other situations. Uh, and of course, Hickenlooper's the guy who spared the life of Nathan Dunlap, who murdered four people uh, by murdering them at a Chuck E. Cheese. If, if that's what's in his conscience and he wants to run on, uh, that's his right to do so. Natasha, what do you think Michael Bennett made of Hickenlooper's town hall performance this week? I'm sure he was taking notes <laughs> and do's and don'ts. And I think there were some moments when Hickenlooper, you know, really showed off his personality. And um, that went over well in, in times where he showed off his personally, personality and that didn't go over as well. I'm thinking particularly the vice president um, comment uh, where they asked if he would, like other candidates, consider a female um, uh, vice president on. Uh, on his ticket, and he, he had a very Hickenlooper answer. I think anyone who's lived in Colorado for a long time, he responded in the way he often responds to questions. And he started, it wasn't quite finished, and then it moved it to pivot into a different direction. Um, and the pivot is where things went a little bit wrong. I heard George Brockler on the new, on radio yesterday um, say that he essentially mansplained um, why the commentator should ask that question of female candidates. Um, CNN talked about there were sort of audible groans in the the audience when he made this comment. And I think that that was what I was seeing on social media immediately afterwards, too. You're in this incredible moment. You have the nation watching. You have people um, having an introduction to you and your ideas. And at that moment, to say that, it felt like the, the absolute wrong thing um, and just out of touch. Um, I don't think it's what he meant to say. And I think what I'd like to do instead is sort of direct the, the conversation to the way that we treat female candidates when they're running for a 
political office as both in the way the media treats them, but the way that um, just there's discrepancies and inequities in the political system. And I think he could have gone in that direction. Um, it just didn't come off quite that way. And it seemed that the town hall was quintessential Hickenlooper because in Colorado we're used to this. It's kind of, that quirky brand actually works really well here. How do you think it plays nationwide? It's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, I think Democratic primary voters are looking for someone who can beat Trump. That's the goal, right? We don't. We have our policy differences. There are plenty of people who are who are you know died in the wool Medicare for all supporters who won't support candidates who won't go really far to the left on the environment and issues that we find extremely important. But I think fundamentally we're looking for somebody who can win the White House in 2020. So I think Hickenlooper proved that he's a you know top or second tier contender for that nomination with the town hall. The fact that he got one to begin with like lets us know that the world is taking him seriously and the fact that like yeah sure he had a gaffe but we're used to him having gaffes and he's actually okay at playing them off the substance of the town hall i thought was really good he answered some really tough questions in really honest ways and i think he came across great he it's hard to be funny in those situations and he like nailed a couple jokes and i think people like that we have to show the strongest contrast to donald trump we possibly can i think john hickenlooper is an extremely strong contrast to donald trump so if the question is you know did he prove that he has the medal to be a national I think the answer is yeah, but I think the proof point comes in Iowa and New Hampshire. Patty, what do you think? Did it, uh, I'll ask you the same question I asked uh, David, did it help or hurt Hickenlooper? I would say it's a wash. Um, the woman gaffe was really not good, especially because they had just asked that question of Elizabeth Warren two nights earlier. So that was a gap, but it was a kind of a classic Hickenlooper and then trying to retrench. What I thought he did very well on was the death penalty. We sat at this table when he made the decision on Nathan Dunlap and people were talking about what a political decision it was or wasn't. And I thought that at the time was truly a vintage Hickenlooper decision that made no one happy except maybe himself because he'd really measured it. And he talked to Archbishop Chip Pugh and he'd really thought about the inequity of how it had been handled. He'd really studied it. What I'm sorry we didn't do and which now it looks like we will get is have a long-term discussion of the death penalty in Colorado. So he acquitted himself well on that issue. He really showed how he was thinking. And now all of Colorado will probably get to do it because of the, the uh, legislation that might come up at the Senate. This week, the Colorado Joint Budget Committee gave preliminary approval for $185 million that would fund the full-day kindergarten plan pushed by Governor Jared Polis. Members of the JBC were quick to point out that the number is a placeholder until the bill that would define the program is finalized. Wasting no time, Governor Polis helped announce the bill to utilize the funds on Friday morning. Uh, Natasha, this feels like Governor Polis getting his way, even though the JBC said, well, it's a placeholder, it's a maybe, it's a preliminary approval. It felt like on Friday morning, Governor Polis said, fantastic, we have everything ready to go, and we can just install it. Uh, is Polis putting the cart before the horse? Well, he did ask for a lot more, millions and millions more than what he got. So I'm sure there's some people could argue that restraint was shown and in, in giving him this money. I mean, it would have been a political earthquake if, if, the, if they didn't get behind giving him support for this topic. It was his number one issue when he was campaigning, you know, his earliest speeches coming out and saying that this was a priority for him. I'm not surprised that they found the funds to make this um, happen. Now we get down to the business of what actually the budget's going to be like and next week is going to be a very interesting week because, as you say, these are, these are numbers that are penciled in. There's a lot of moving targets. Um, there's already a lot of feedback on the money that has been penciled in for transportation and whether that's enough or not. Um, th there's going to be a lot of budget conversations in the next week. 
And what do you think about that in reference to other priorities? Full-day kindergarten was a major priority for Governor Polis, and I have nothing against kindergartners getting a better education. Or uh, any education Or any all. education at all. Uh, but I drive in a lot of really lousy roads more often than I bump into kindergartners that need full-day kindergarten. Uh, what do you think Colorado, how Coloradans are going to look at this priority? I mean, what you're talking about is the artificial scarcity created by Tabor, right? I mean, we're, we're a state that is unable to reach our full potential because we have this very stupid tax law that prevents us from growing according to our needs. People are flocking to the state. They're moving here in droves. The state and city have planned poorly for growth. I don't think there's another way to interpret that. But the fact is, like, we need more resources for the things we care about. Full-day kindergarten is something that is nearly universal. Everybody gets it. It becomes an equalizer. And we know for a fact that if kids are getting a, a strong education, the earlier the better, and then their chances for success later down the line to go to college, get a job, start the next great business, contribute to the economy, go up and up and up. So I think this is a popular idea, and I think it's smart to do it. But the problem is we are forced with a constitutional gun to our heads to have to choose between things that we ought not to have to choose between. We should be able to be able to fully fund roads and K-12 and have a higher education system that isn't like laughably underfunded to the point where like I paid for my entire higher ed in New Jersey what one person pays for one year of in-state tuition at CU right now. Um, we have huge challenges and they're fiscal in nature, but government needs to prove to people that they're going to be responsible with the money. I don't discount what Dave said earlier about Ref C. The fact is that we have a chance here to bring in more revenue, to fund popular programs with this Tabor, you know, debrucing cap thing passes. Then the legislature and the government has to go and actually put the money where they say it's going to. If they do, that will generate more trust and then we will be able to build programs that work for everybody. If not, it'll give people like Dave more talk points. Uh, Patty, what do you think of Governor Polis's move of pouncing up on the opportunity of a preliminary approval? Well, I'm more concerned about you driving along potholes and hitting kindergartners, which is what it sounded like. But he only does it once in a while. Well, that's true. Uh, I have to say, this is, a, this is a pretty hard thing to argue against as a greater good. You might disagree about climate change. You might disagree about some of the clean air actions, oil and gas. There are a lot of things Coloradans don't agree on, but Educating kids and giving everyone an equal start in Colorado is a, is a really good starting point for us all to talk about. It's what Polis ran on. He said he wanted to do it. He's pushing it through now. He's got a little leeway because if this plan to take the ballot measure to let us kind of debruce on keeping excess revenues and take care of some other forms of education on the roads works that way, he's going to have his money for one year of kindergarten. We're going to have a really smart group of five-year-olds, and then who knows what will happen after that. <laughs> Good luck, four-year-olds. Uh, David, wrap it up for us. Well, the question was uh, better education versus any education at all, and part of that is the choice in how this is structured. You can say we're going to force everybody to go to the government school only, some of which are very good, some of which are mediocre or less. Uh, I think the best approach is the Denver uh, model uh, for its pre-kindergarten program where you can, if you, you want to go to a government school, that's okay. Or if you want to go to an independent school with the, the same amount of funding, that's okay too. It's better to let a let hundred flowers bloom and support diversity of education because not all kids are the same and not all kids should be in the same kind of standardized system. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, first, so no one else makes me a disgrace, it was Amendment 2, not Amendment B in 92 that turned us into the hate state. So let me correct myself there. Uh, don't miss the interview we have with Doug Bruce next week, which is 
such an interesting fellow with who we have talked about for 26, 20, 26 years at this table, who came up with a really interesting noble idea that I'm that people like David love, that the Independence Institute loves, that is in principle a really good idea to let people vote on taxes, but the fact that Doug Bruce is still the spokesperson and is in the name is a tricky one. David. Well, the continuing disgrace of the BDS Jew-hating anti-Semites, not only in Congress, uh, but elsewhere. And so it's good to remember uh, Purim, where that same crowd back in Persia uh, tried to exterminate all Jews and also lost. So all I can say is to all of you who want to exterminate Israel, you're on the wrong side of history. Natasha. Uh, news broke, I think, yesterday about Facebook storing um, passwords in a pretty unsafe way. Um, it's not the first bad news about Facebook that we've heard, but, uh, you know, trying to make lemonade out of lemons here, I think it is grazing vis- visibility for people about who we share our information with and the standards by which we should require the people that we're handing this over to, um, how, they, how they store it and how they keep it. So this could probably be a perennial. <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> you're right. Ian. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that God sent Donald Trump to govern the United States of America. Um, I, like Dave, read the Old Testament, and my God wouldn't have sent that unless it was a plague. So as far as I'm concerned, that is a pretty disgraceful statement. And with all of what has Trump been doing and saying since before he's been elected, since now we could go through the list, but anybody who watches this show knows what I'm going to say next, um, that's absolutely disgraceful. Time to say something nice rather quickly. Patty. Uh, We're in the middle of putting together our 35th annual Best of Denver, and all I can say is there are a lot of really great things in this city. Here, here. David. I don't know if Donald Trump was chosen by God for a time such as this, as the Book of Esther says, but I can tell you he did the right thing this week by recognizing longstanding Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights, the Syrian dictatorship lost that strategic area when it started a war of extermination against Israel in 1967 and lost it. And thank God it is now part of the state of Israel, as Donald Trump and the U.S. now recognize, because the people who live there are a lot safer and they're not being mass murdered, unlike the people who remain under the vicious Assad regime. Natasha. Do you announce that it will no longer make it mandatory to report your SAT or ACT scores and applications? And given the, the rather bizarre conversation that's been happening about college applications recently, I applaud an effort to look at um, rethinking how we, we judge potential in young students. Ian. Um, I, I got to moderate a forum last night between uh, Dr. Lisa Calderon, Mayor Michael Hancock, Jamie Gellis, and Senator Penfield-Tate, who are four out of the six candidates who have made the ballot for Denver mayor. Um, last night, the other two are Kaylin Heffernan and Chairman Seku. Um, it was an awesome conversation, so if you want to take a look, uh, Progress Now, Colorado's Facebook page or the Alliance Center's Facebook page, it was a huge, robust discussion on sustainability, and I want to thank all the candidates for showing up and really like bringing it last night. It was pretty amazing. Cool. And I want to say something nice about a couple of folks you're going to see in their credits. I'm very proud to announce that we have a new producer here at Colorado Inside Out, Chelsea Hernandez. Uh, Speaking of DU, she's joining us. She used to be our intern from DU. Now she's going to be our full-time producer on Colorado Inside Out. We're very happy to have her. I also want to thank Adrian Eatman. He has served as our line producer for almost a year, keeping the trains running on time to make sure that we could do the work to find the uh, the person who's going to be writing and working on the show. Without both of them, uh, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show every week. So I'm grateful for both their work. 
And be sure to tune in next week to the premiere of a very special program, The Cannabis Project, a one-hour look at the cannabis industry in Colorado. Hosted by Heidi Hemmett and featuring interviews with many experts, including Bob Hoban, the program is an important look at an industry playing a major role in Colorado. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.